Welcome to the Think Data podcast brought to you in partnership with DataWorks. If you want to stay up to date with the latest breakthroughs and trends in the world of data and artificial intelligence, and if you're curious about some of the strategies that companies and founders use to launch data and AI products, then you're in the right place. Our aim is to bring together a diverse lineup of fantastic guests from the founders through to accomplished leaders and product owners at some of the most fascinating data and AI companies worldwide. They will each offer you their own unique insight into what it takes to launch and scale a great data business. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Think Data podcast um, in partnership with DataWorks. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you on the show today. We've actually got a um, special edition today. We're in person in New York in the run-up to Christmas, post-Thanksgiving. Uh, I've got Arditya Kurjeka to the show. He is the founder of Identity.ai. I think in your own admission, your third company you founded. Um, really interesting business. They are a digital identity business and they are built specifically uh, to address the needs of the AI enabled space. And obviously your background wasn't necessarily classic startup. You actually came from corporate America, uh, Lucent, Verizon, um, and then you found your first business in 2012. So thanks so much for coming on. And uh, for those that don't know, I know you've going to talk us through your journey now, but can you give us a bit of a background to you and ultimately what brought you to launch your third business? Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Alex. And I'm glad you're enjoying New York. This is the best time to be in this uh, city. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we are here. And, and thank you for inviting me again. My pleasure. It's, um, it's been quite a journey for me. I think my founder journey is only about you know, 12, 13 years old. And I, I spent the first um, half of my career, I guess, more than that in corporate America, like you said, in classic, classic journey, right? Engineer by training, uh, came to this country for my graduate studies, became a chip designer, uh, worked in Bell Labs, um, wanted to do something different than banging out chips, went into enterprise software, boring billing software, but mission critical, you know, if you can generate a bill. Um, as a phone company or as an internet service provider, you don't get paid. Uh, yeah. So even though it's not the sexiest of businesses, um, I learned the importance of infrastructure, software infrastructure that, that makes large enterprises hum. Um, from there, I went on to mobile. Verizon recruited me. It was right in my backyard. I lived in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, the, the epicenter <laughs> of, of uh, U.S. mobile um, operator innovation. And I felt like I felt like there was so much going on at the time in the mobile world. This was 2004, five, right? We were right at the cusp of uh, uh, getting into mobile internet and uh, you know high-speed connectivity on phones. And I remember uh, kind of the days when uh, I had to submit a business case to my CMO about whether or not we should put a camera in the phone. Is it worth the five bucks? <laughs> For phone, should we should we really invest in a Wi-Fi chip? How about Bluetooth? Oh, really? Is it worth it? And you know, it feels like yesterday. Yeah. And look how long we have come. Now we take those things for granted. Um, anyway, so that was that was my my tennis years in in um, the mobile operator world. Um, had a few gigs there. Had a great experience. My last gig there, 
uh, was mobile payments. And uh, what we know today as Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Android Pay, the tap and pay system where you can tap your phone or your Apple Watch on a point of sale terminal and pay. Uh, we worked on that back in 2008, nine. Uh, and I feel like, you know, I've, I've had the, uh, the opportunity uh, multiple times to reinvent myself, do something mm. different every, I don't know, seven, eight years. Wow. Um, left the large company environment uh, in 2012, early 12, built a conference, now the largest fintech conference in the world, Money 2020. That was a quick one, uh, built and sold in two years. Wow. Um, and then sold my last company, Medici, to prove two years ago. And now here I am doing identity for AI-enabled markets. So that's the that's the quick snapshot of, of my journey so far. It is a journey. I'm really interested to talk about that kind of transition from corporate America, where you are making those decisions. If you think to kind of where we are now, thinking about putting a chip or a phone, you know, a camera and a phone, it's kind of it's crazy how far we have evolved. But when you took the transition, what was the decision behind kind of leaving the relative comfort of a, a larger player and, and kind of throwing caution to the wind and launching something? You know, I I like to blame that instinct on my, partly on my engineer training, but I think what that does is it, it makes me a builder. Mm. I like to build things. Um, and I feel like sometimes in large companies when you don't have uh, enough of a creative outlet for that build instinct, you know, that leads to um, you not being content in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, I was very fortunate. I had, uh, like I said, uh, an opportunity to work on something new uh, every few years, even in large companies, but I felt like I wanted to do more and uh, be accountable to myself. Um, it's something that I feel like it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see that as uh, as something that people should do because it has a high uh, glamour quotient, if you will. Mm. But once you jump into the entrepreneurial well, it's not as sexy. No. Okay? There is hard work. Uh, things are always prettier from the outside. Uh, but I have no regrets. I feel like there is a certain path for certain people to keep climbing the corporate ladder. And I felt like that wasn't what I was enjoying. Mm. Nothing wrong in that. Um, nothing uh, great about um, leaving corporate America and jumping in the deep well. Uh, but I felt like at the time, that's what I wanted to do. And I have to say this, it's not just that it's not for everybody. It's even if it is for you, it may not be possible for you. Mm. I had a young family at the time and I could not have done it and let go of the paycheck if my wife hadn't supported me at the time. And so it's something that I I have to be grateful for being able to do it when I did it. Yeah, I, I can relate to that as obviously a, a fledging founder of a small business. I think the support of the kind of family unit really enables you to kind of free that headspace up to focus on what's important. Absolutely. And I know you know, Think Data is kind of as a podcast has kind of evolved to speak to a lot of founders like yourself. and. There's a lot of aspiring kind of entrepreneurs that listen in. Equally, there's just people that are just curious about curious about the space. But I'm I'm interested to dig on that kind of journey from taking an idea and a concept 
from Medici and actually scaling that? Because I know we'll talk about obviously your current business soon because it's so topical with where we are at the moment. But what were the kind of first steps you took when you had the product, had the idea, or you had the idea, and then you were looking at commercializing that? What were the kind of steps you took? This may not be the best, um, I should say, template for anyone to follow because uh, some of the words you used there, product and commercialization, we probably did not do what we were supposed to do um, in the right sequence and maybe not uh, you know, with enough focus. So our early days, you know, in hindsight now, looking back at the early days of Medici, you could say it was almost a hobby. Mm. And I would not recommend anyone leaving a paycheck and pursuing a hobby with, you know, two young children no. at home. Okay, um, that's not the definition of being responsible. But like I said, I had I had the foundation of having worked on Money 2020, which was fantastically successful in a very short period of time, and. It gave me confidence. Maybe you can say it gave me overconfidence to say, hey, I did it once. I can do it one more time. Mm. And what I really wanted to do was to take my learnings from my first venture, Money 2020, and my last corporate venture, which was the joint venture of the three biggest operators in the country, first ever. Uh, they spent a billion dollars in putting together what you know today as tap and pay, NFC-based uh, payments. And I said, what can I learn from this and what can I do uh, that will be truly impactful? Because I saw the value of the conference platform as enabling innovation. Yeah. Right. When you bring people, especially from different walks of life, um, into one room and have them engage and converse and come up with uh, business ideas, you are creating tremendous value. Mm. And I wanted to take that energy that I saw in the, even the first year of Money 2020 and make that a global, digital, everyday engagement and innovation platform. So that was really the seed of why I wanted to build the company that we later called Medici, right? Mm. So when we started the company, we called it Let's Talk Payments. Okay. Like, like a very, you know... Uh, easy going name, almost a folksy name for mm. a company if you think about it. And people love that. People love the fact that we were just putting content out there. We weren't getting paid for it. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, my co-founder and I, we said, hey, what should be our first goal? We said, uh, you know, if 10,000 people, you know, show up to the website and read the articles, maybe we are doing something right. And guess what? We hit that 10,000 mark very quickly. So, okay, so we are doing something right. We're writing something useful. So we kept writing. In fact, we kept publishing original content every day of the week. Every day of the week. Mm. Now, you could say, well, that's some commitment. But then on the other hand, you could say, well, was that, was that the best way to spend our energy? Right? So we did not commercialize until much later. Okay. Our product wasn't clear to many people until much later. And so it took us a couple of years to figure out that, you know what, there is no, there is no sustainable recurring revenue stream from publishing content and doing advisory work. That's how we were making revenue. And 
we had to literally force ourselves to become or to remind ourselves who we were. Mm. I was a builder. I was a tech guy. I was doing great content. I was helping VCs. I was helping founders. I, help, I was helping people understand what fintech was. But I hadn't really invested in building a platform that would give me a recurring sustainable revenue stream. And that's the realization that we came to a couple of years down the road. It's a fascinating journey. I think there's so many ways you can get to the point of whether it's a sale, an acquisition or an exit, but and no path is wrong or right. It's a, And I, I guess going through that journey, so obviously you, you, you took those decisions, you didn't necessarily follow the classic route as you kind of alluded to earlier. Prove obviously were known in the market. How, how did that kind of acquisition come about? Because I know a lot of people, when they're growing a business, there's a lot of kind of considerations, the people that work for you, they're kind of, what's next for you afterwards? Um, how did that come about? And, and how do you know at that point in that time, in that journey, that was the right time? Yeah, I think I think the the answer, or I should say the, um, the acquisition and the deal that we did with Prove, it, it came as a surprise to many people, right? Uh, even my investment banker friends who, uh, are supposedly experts at you know <laughs> marrying buyer and seller. They were scratching their heads. So what what was that? And then in hindsight, they're like, oh, now we see it. So from our perspective, though, from the inside out, you know, the um, the Uber driver was really the maturation of the fintech industry. Mm. Okay, because the the way we had grown. Uh, you know, we we you know we used to get some great compliments like, "Hey, you guys are the Bloomberg of fintech. You guys are the McKinsey of fintech. You guys are shaping the contours of what people are calling fintech." And we we took those humbly. But the point there is that we had literally uh, block by block, research report by research report, uh, with every piece of content and startup profile we had. Um, grown along with the growth of fintech and some people say we contributed to the growth of mm -hmm. fintech as an industry but then when fintech became a mainstream topic when it wasn't uh, so mystical anymore when it was um, a word that you would see on the front pages of national newspapers we felt like our job is getting close to done Right, because our specialty was to uncover the unknowns of the complexity of fintech, was to um, you know showcase the nuances of the various sixty-five or so sub-segments within fintech that we had built out the ontology for, and helping investors and founders and banks make sense of that complexity. But as that complexity uh, was unraveled, and as it as it was you know, common to see fintech companies go IPO and the mainstream market understand what it is, we felt like you know, we had to be part of a larger home yeah. or we had to um, expand uh, kind of what other industries we covered uh, with our platform. And so that's when we made the choice. You know, we wanted to uh, make sure that uh, our brand, um, our talent, our platform, our content uh, would be used uh, in a mainstream way by a company that was itself on a growth curve. Yeah. And, and so Prove was a perfect partner for us on that. 
Yeah, there's a lot to be said about timing, isn't it? You've got to have that yeah. feeling, the sentiment, the market, it just felt right. And I, I'm really excited to dig on your new venture. I said your your third venture, um, identity.ai. What is it and kind of what, what, what problem is it solving? Because obviously it's within the digital identity space. We've obviously seen the boom and surge of AI is everywhere. We'll get on to shortly, but who are they and kind of what problem are you solving? So look, I've had a chance now to really deep soak myself into the uh, issues, the nuances um, of identity and digital identity in, you know, particularly. Uh, we have also seen, um, you know, almost an industry kind of uh, grow very rapidly, the crypto space, mm. the Web3 space, and then, you know, you could say they're in a bit of a funk right now, you know, still figuring out who they are. Um, but a combination of my learnings in digital identity and some of the fantastic building blocks that we have um, from the crypto folks, right? We have decentralized uh, ledger technology, also known as the blockchain. Uh, we have uh, the notion of zero knowledge uh, proofs and having an ability to protect people's privacy and identity so that you can protect them, uh, you know, in the in the brave new open world where there is so much at risk mm. simply by being truthful. Yep. So the notion of anonymity and pseudonymity is becoming more and more important. And now the latest, uh, the AI wave, I call it the third wave of AI. Right? Yep. We have, we have um, seen this a couple of times in the last 70 years, right? AI is not something that was invented in 2023. No. But what AI has done, it has captured the imagination of the masses. And uh, we are in a place right now where the internet is um, full of AI-generated content. And the problem is that it is very difficult to discern uh, what is fake, what is real, where is it coming from, the the provenance of content. That's a, that's a fancy word to say, can I trust it? Completely right. Right. And so what we are doing here now is really addressing that content authentication problem by making it easy for anyone uh, to digitally sign their creation. So a creator can say, I did it very easily. And on the other side, anybody looking at that content can know who did it. Okay, almost like that a, is the problem you're solving. Like a mark, like a, a certificate of authenticity, almost like for a painting. Exactly, exactly. Fascinating. Exactly. And what we will make sure we for, for people listening and, and watching, we'll we'll make sure we tag you know the business in so people can take a look at some of the use cases you're involved Absolutely. in. And I'm, you know, I know third time found, finding a company, but I also know that you're very kind of active in this um, startup space is from both an investor standpoint from a from a, um, uh, advisory position and uh, you're, you're right it's the third iteration of ai at the moment where unbeknownst to my mum, it's not just happened in the last six months we've been right. talking last 10 15 years different variations of ai but it is also in, you're right earlier a period of flux at the moment where companies are trying to find their way when you're looking at startups uh, and you're advising them, what are the key things you're looking for in those businesses at the moment? And beyond that, how are companies in this space going to become successful? Because obviously at the moment, 
you know, money's not cheap anymore. There's a lot of talk at the moment um, about where this market will go. But what would be your advice for those who may be coming to you with a startup or, or an idea? The one thing I've learned, and I've 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 had a, a long learning process, you know, with with uh, you know, uh, two companies that, like I said, did not go by the book, mm. right? Um, they worked out great, but I I learned along the way, and I'm continuing to learn. And so, what I share here is as much a reminder to myself mm. as I would um, uh, share with somebody asking me for advice. I think the most important thing, the first step, is to really understand the problem space very very deeply because from a domain standpoint so yeah know that space yes yeah right because especially for me right uh, who has you know a builder instinct who has a creator mindset uh, you know most founders I believe are are like me who who want to solve problems and the mistake we make is that we focus on the solve part before mm. the problem part. Yeah. Right? So understanding the problem enough, making sure that it is a real problem, making sure that it is a big enough problem, and making sure that the way you're going to approach the problem to begin with, you know, is special enough. Mm. That is the first step. Now, I also believe that the solution space can change as you experiment. Yeah, but the problem space has to be well identified. That I think is the biggest learning that I have had in the last, you know, just in the even in the last few months as mm. I have been articulating what is the problem I'm solving with identity.ai, I'm reminding myself to stay focused on the problem space first without getting, you know, uh, too comfortable with my own idea of the solution. I think it's really interesting you touched on that because the way we've seen AI ebb and flow, even the last 10 days with OpenAI, you know, the, the founder issues there and they've come back in and then the, the, the OpenAI summit and then sent shockwaves through the market from a GBT standpoint. But people who are very honed in on the, the, the space and the problem they're trying to solve, AI is going to evolve, the technology is going to change. But if there's a genuine problem you can solve, um, then kind of the technology should enable that. Is that kind of what you mean by that? Because I'm guessing if you're just trying to put a wrap around uh, ChatGPT, then yeah. that business, as we've seen a lot recently, generative AI, um, I think those companies will struggle. No, I think I think you are spot on. You know, AI is a technology. Mm. Blockchain is a technology. Yeah. Okay. They are not problems in themselves. No. Right. So. When I say we are focused on um, a problem in the content space, we are saying the problem is getting amplified because of generative AI. Mm. I'm not saying AI is a problem. I'm saying AI is a technology that is making a problem larger. That problem has always been there. Yeah. The problem of identifying the source of truth uh, for the content you're looking at has always been there. AI is making that problem larger which is why we believe now is the right time to address it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's making the problem larger, but it's ultimately going to sol help solve the problem, isn't it? So right. I think you, you, when we go back to kind of the the boom of the cloud market and to a certain degree blockchain, but I, I think blockchain's a great uh, product, a great platform, a great uh, solution, but maybe AI has just gathered more 
kind of media attention and it's suddenly become that that space. But in terms of where we are now, um, obviously in the run up to the AI summit, which is obviously what, what I'm here for in New York, um, there's going to be, I think a lot of people have probably changed their speeches in, in light of what's happened recently. <laughs> but yeah. um, what's your honest assessment of where we are now and kind of over the next 12, 18 months? Do you think almost 12, 18 months is too far down the line? Do you think we should be taking this month by month? What's your summary of where we are? I'm a fan of long-term thinking. Yeah, I I don't I don't like to plan for the next uh, few months because things typically take longer than what you think they would mm. take, anyways. And here's the other: not to get too philosophical, we are going to live long lives. Yeah, right. Whether you like it or not, you know we are going to live a hundred years. You know, you and I, mm. quite likely. Yeah. So what's the rush? Let's do it right. Mm. Right. AI is going to evolve. AI might not make it as we think it will. It may not live up to its hype. We may never achieve AGI. We, AI may never be able to become smarter than a five-year-old. But that doesn't mean uh, that we don't solve the problems that AI is surfacing, right? And in fact, right now, most of the talk is about LLMs. Yep. Well, Let's keep them aside for a second. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the fantastic progress that AI is making without LLMs in molecular biology, in coming up with the drugs to solve for diseases, yep. in coming up with uh, solutions to issues that are not tractable uh, for humans. And I think you know the, the building blocks or the enablers that has made AI uh, kind of this headline story, those are more important than the very polarizing, you know, hey, it can be fantastic or it can be, you know, disaster. I like to find the balance. Yep. I like to look at what is truly the core enabler for this hype and what can we do with it in the long term. That's what I like to do. I think it's really uh, some really good advice there because I think there's a lot of kind of nervousness around job displacement. Uh, you know, the negative ramifications of innovation, which we're seeing at the moment. But I think you touched on a really valid point there. AI for good, you know, drug discovery, uh, health tech, chronic disease detection, um, and actually as an enabler to everyday life, I think it's there's a lot to be said, yeah, innovate as quickly as you can. Um, I, I know we've not necessarily discussed this offline, but as a byproduct of AI, there's a lot of ethical considerations and you're in the digital identity business. What are your views on the kind of ethics around AI? Because I think that's what everyone talks about. Yeah, innovation's great, but how are we going to control this? You know, we had the, the White House mandate. We've had back in the UK, we've had other kind of government initiatives. But, but what are your thoughts around ethics within AI and how important do you think they are? I think they're absolutely important. In fact, um, our core principle as we are building R&D.AI, even though AI is in the name of the company, mm we are taking a human-first approach okay, in a variety of different ways, right? One, we are saying that when somebody is going to sign or countersign a document, that somebody has to be human, cannot be a bot. Interesting. Okay. The second thing we are saying is that that human has agency over their preferences in terms of how they should be known, how much of them should be known, mm. how how public or private or anonymous or pseudonymous they want to stay. That is that human's choice, right? What we call in fancy words, self-sovereign identity, we are believers in that. Yep. The third thing is 
look, creativity comes from humanity, right? I uh, saw this beautiful BBC piece yesterday about how AI is being used in Bollywood. And um, I would highly recommend you go look it up. This is a, a quick piece where they feature the producer Shekhar Kapoor okay. and one of the stars, uh, Shah Rukh Khan. And Shekhar Kapoor's last line in there, if I were to paraphrase it, he's asked, aren't you concerned that AI is going to do everything that you can do you can and do. have done in yeah. your career? And he goes, no, as a human, I know I can deal with chaos and uncertainty. AI can only look at the past and learn from past data. Yep. I can thrive in complexity and chaos. That's why I'm creative. I thought that was very insightful. Yeah, very smart so, way of looking at it. Human first approach to innovation will always win. Yeah, no, no, I like that. And I, I, I want to close things off and with an opportunity to kind of talk about what's next for identity.ai. I know you're is relatively early stage that you're heavily involved in that business now. You're about you're leaving here, heading off to the West Coast. There's obviously some traction and momentum gathering. But what what can you publicly say about kind of what people can begin to see and hear from the product over the next kind of six or twelve months? Absolutely. I mean, look, it's it's kind of out of stealth now. We yeah. do have um, a website, uh, a landing page. You can go check out and get in. Uh, your email address, so we'll we'll share updates with you as we as we launch the product in the coming months. We are um, doing this not just because you know it's a problem amplified by AI, but we are in um, a time in society right now where there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation, yep. and that could have an impact on elections next year in mm -hmm. this country uh, that is already having um, you know an impact and just rising anxiety with coverage of the war in the Middle East. Um, pretty much everything that we see and hear, it has become in, it has become increasingly difficult to trust. And so yeah. we feel like this is a time for us to really bring this technology out there to be able to authenticate content. And one more thing I'll say is that we are big believers in working with universal standards. Yep. I don't want to build something um, which is proprietary and you know, uh, you know, pretend that I'm the smartest of them all. I'm not, right? Uh, this is a global problem. Mm. This is an internet-wide problem. This is a content format agnostic problem. This is an industry agnostic problem. So we are working with the standards bodies. We are working with consortia. We are working with folks who have attempted this before, and that is why we feel that this is a problem so large enough, but worth solving that everybody has a way to contribute to it. No, look, I'm I'm really excited to see the progression. I think you're you're in that space, which yeah, as as a consumer of content, um, it is getting really hard, isn't it, to kind of actually understand who's created this, and then you kind of second guess to to a certain degree that people will start reading content, they'll stop because they'll be like, well, yeah. is do I believe this, do I not? And I think you're solving, on your point earlier, you're in a space that needs a, a solution and a product. And I've got no surprise or, or that it, it won't do particularly well, So uh, or it will do particularly well. And I'm uh, excited to have you on. Thanks so, so much for taking time. I know you're uh, leaving here and heading off to the West Coast. So uh, thank it's you. been my pleasure to have you on. Thanks so, so much. No, thank you, Alex, for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for the wonderful questions. And thank you for uh, sharing my thoughts with you. I, I wish you have a fantastic conference here and enjoy your time in New York. I will do. Thanks so, so much. Thank you.